Good morning, Eugene. Good morning, Sharice. How are you? Oh, this is the worst. Just Why when we start this weird? podcast, someone's drilling above. Oh, for real? Someone's drilling above. But we'll, I think we'll have to power through yeah. it. We're, we're already behind schedule. I mean, this is, okay, this is nowhere as bad as when we did episode 10 at 1 a.m. Let's, let's jump into it. I think there's a lot of things we want to talk about today. Yeah. Some updates. Yeah. Uh, it's been a busy week. Uh, Alex and I got back from... We got back from traveling over the course of eight days. We hit Tokyo. We hit Seoul. Um, in Tokyo, we did a series of talks with Taku and Dropbox, which went really well. It was the first time Alex and I had sort of presented to the public um, together. Mm-hmm. And I honestly, it was it was a really fun experience because at the end of the day, it's it's great to be able to tell your story. But on that same note, it's fun to, I don't know, the way I likened it to in the briefing was, it's as though you're sort of DJing, although it's easier. And what I mean is you're constantly looking at the crowd's reactions and how they interact with you to see if you're hitting on the right points. What's something you learned by having to give these two talks? I think one thing that's really important and that we've been mindful of with with this podcast is that having face-to-face interaction is so critical, not only with the audience, but also you and I like... I can take visual cues from you mm. and you can take visual cues from me. Like if I see that, hey, I want to, I want to interject, you can read that off me, yeah. right? And that was sort of the things that Alex and I learned because we did two talks. The first one was very segmented. It was like Eugene speaks, Alex speaks, Eugene speaks, Alex speaks. But then in the second one, there were points where we would just make eye contact. That would be essentially be a signal that, oh, I want something or I have something to add to that piece of uh, information you just yeah. shared. Before we dive into today's topics, let's talk about our... Speed listening experience? You start first. So in episode 10 last week, we agreed that for this past week, you would listen to all your podcasts at regular 1x and I would listen at anything greater than 1x, you know, up to my ability. And I actually forgot about the deal we struck. So it was... Good and bad. So I tried it out on our own podcast, like on episode 10. I tried it on This American Life, Top Rank Magazine, The Illusionist, and Hello Internet. So I just want to say like I covered a variety of podcasts. The one that it worked the best on was ours. Why do you think it worked best on our podcast? Two reasons. One is I was already familiar with what I was going to be listening to. So I didn't have to concentrate as hard on understanding the information and I guess maybe we speak really slowly. I think that it's a bad example because you knew exactly what was coming. So it you were basically listening to something that you already had virtually 100% familiarity with, right? Yeah. But also, I, I am happy to recommend test. people speed listen to making it up because we sound even more articulate and put together. The negative feedback, like in terms of this speed listening experience, I did want to slow the, whatever I was listening to when there was an emotional moment. So I was listening to this American life and I was listening to a episode that's a tribute to David Rakoff who died five years ago. And there were moments where I was like, I think this would be more appropriately moving if I wasn't speed listening to it. There was one section that was just hard to listen to him read. He has uh, one of his characters, Cliff, 
die of AIDS. And uh, David was dying of cancer as he wrote this section. And in this section, he tries to capture some of what that experience is like. What a difference a day makes. Now times that by 20. Clifford was hollow, a horn of unplenty, tipping the scales at 115 at most. He was more bone than flesh now, and less man than ghost. I've definitely identified when's the best time to use it and when I would not use it. So that I need to preface because I actually, I actually tweeted something on Twitter um, about speed listening in general, and someone came back at me and was like, "Oh, but shouldn't you, shouldn't you listen to long form podcasts as a moment to slow down?" And my argument is that when you listen to interviews, which are generally the only moments in which I will speed listen kind of like a back and forth dialogue. I'll definitely do it as such, but interviews generally in my experience, the ones I listen to anyways, your mileage may vary, don't have that same, those same emotional moments perhaps, mm -hmm. which is why I never really picked up on it. So from my experience, by listening to things at 1x, generally I think what, what it did was it exasperated poor narration in the sense that it was very monotone whereas when it's sped up like I don't notice it as much yeah that's one thing secondly I likened it to walking behind the slowest people at the mall you know and it's the most annoying thing where I'm like I can walk faster but I am physically limited from walking faster um, and that was frustrating for me because I, I deliberately picked a mix of shorter and longer podcasts to test it and it wasn't a test to, to prove myself as being right or correct, but I knew I was going to hate it going into it, and I, it was generally confirmed. So it's not like this was a contest, but if it had been, then you win. Because I will be listening. I'll take it. I'll take I will it. be listening to certain things at greater than 1x. I'm not at close to 2x speeds, but I can comfortably listen to... Somewhere between 1.3 and 1.6, depending on, depending on the podcast I'm listening to. So I guess the takeaway is this. Speed listening works in certain contexts. Try it out. Um, it seems weird that we devoted so much time to talking about this, but I honestly think it's like <laughs> a, an important part of podcasting in general. So Sharice, let's get started. What is your topic of the week? My topic is a item we included in last Friday's briefing. And it's an article written by Fashionista called Is Church Merch the Next Big Thing in Streetwear? And other publications have written similar articles about this concept of hype priests. So to give you some explanation of this whole phenomenon, um, Justin Bieber hangs out. I bet we didn't expect to be talking about Bieber on this podcast. Maybe ever. All right. So Justin Bieber mm, hangs no. out with Zoe Church's Chad Veach and Hillsong Church's Carl Lentz a lot. And both of those are pastors. And there's an observation that the three of them dress very similarly. Similar in the sense that it's, it's very hip. It's really trendy. We're talking like LV Supreme items, things that um, would not look... Basically like a hype beast. Yes. Basically like a hype beast. 
things that don't look out of place if you follow like Supreme and Champion and Hype Beast and whoever else. Um, so it fits right in. Like the look is the same. And there's not, the, the article doesn't present this so much as a concern as just an interesting observation. So beyond the fact that Bieber and these pastors are dressing the same and there's this sort of streetwear trend in in churches now, churches are also creating their own merchandise. A number of the churches I mentioned and also Fresh Life Church and Misfit NYC and Vu Church create their own uh, jackets, tops, shorts, and they are really popular. Popular with celebrities, popular with youth, selling for as much as 190 US when they're being resold. I'm actually really happy you picked this topic. I, I found it really interesting, but my my lack of knowledge about organized religion um, generally held me back from talking about it too much. I have questions that pertain to, I guess my first question would be, does organized religion and what it represents, like are there any inconsistencies with creating a merchandise line around it and just going to church in general? Um, like are these compatible? So to answer your question, I'm happy to give listeners a bit of background on myself. I'm Christian and I've been attending churches for most of my life. Some of them could be considered not the churches I've mentioned, not the churches I listed earlier, but, you know, in that line. And I am familiar with church created apparel and even have designed t-shirts myself for church related events such as conferences. So what you're asking me about whether organized religion and selling merchandise doesn't align I have some thoughts. In Christianity, there is an idea that you shouldn't become overly attached to worldly things. So you could say that that's a concern in terms of selling merchandise. But actually a bigger concern in the church, I would say, is the performance of religion without actual belief behind it. Meaning like people acting out what they think a good Christian is without substance behind it. Basically, this is up for interpretation as to whether there's enough substance behind church merchandise. Well, it's not, my concern is not, I'm not concerned. Sorry, let me rephrase that. I personally do not think that it's problematic for a church to sell merchandise or to design merchandise. And it's actually pretty awesome that what they're creating is cool enough for anyone to appreciate. I think... The catch is that you can't equate wearing clothing from a church to believing in the things the church believes in. I expect the churches are using this as kind of like a way to draw youth in, like to bring youth to the church to begin with, but they need to follow that up with actual teaching. Like, I'm not saying that they're trying to brainwash kids. I just mean... If kids come to the church, I would hope that they supply them with something more substantial than just cool clothes. And I think that's a very valid thing because there are certain parts about the people that have associated themselves with this movement of sorts are very influential people in their own mm -hmm. right. And I was always thinking to myself, will these people latch on for the right reasons? Like I'm personally, I'm an atheist and I don't really identify with any of that stuff, right? But I do think that if, if this is something you're interested in, there has to be a purpose behind it beyond just like, oh, I saw XYZ celebrity wear it. So I'm going to buy that. And I'm going to wear it. Too. Exactly. 
to this point too, I, I had a talk with with Alex about this because Alex is somewhat familiar with these sort of mega hip and cool modern day churches. I don't have any other way of explaining it. Like that's sort of my interpretation. No, that's of that's it. a perfect description. That was a fine description. But he was saying that there's a difference. I was trying to understand a bit more his perspective, and I think there's a there's a difference between the financial side of organized religion versus what religion is at its very core. Mm. And I think those are two things that need to be uh, assessed. I don't. I definitely don't have enough experience to understand what goes on sort of behind the scenes when it comes to like all that organized religion mm-hmm. stuff because. I'm not here to like just, oh, I heard this, so it must be right because I haven't, I don't have enough sort of foundational knowledge behind it. But I think that's the one thing that I always found sort of interesting was bringing these objects into the space, especially when they're sold for profit too. You know, like $190. Wait, or wait, like we all know on. t-shirts that, in general. That was the resale price on Grilled. Oh, yeah, okay. Sorry, the $190 I mentioned earlier was a resale value that was found on Grailed. And at least according to one church's e-commerce site, Misfit NYC, a hoodie costs 45 US. That's relatively reasonable. I I was expecting something a a bit more, but I mean, there's still profit generation there. And is that okay? I don't, that's the thing I'm trying to understand. I did not have any, reading this article and reading some similar articles, I didn't have any concerns about the churches trying to use this as a way to make a lot of money. I don't anticipate that they are making a whole bunch of money from these products. I I just think what's more concerning is this idea that you can use coolness to represent religious thought of any kind or like a belief system of any kind. And people might just flock to the coolness instead of looking deeper. Flocking for the right reasons. Yeah. yeah flocking for the right reasons. Yeah. Right? Like regardless of what you personally think about, you know, God or like what your personal beliefs are, I think you would advocate for individuals doing a thorough investigation for themselves. The way I looked at this was hopefully it's a foot in the door and it's for people to sort of pull themselves through after they find interest in the actual topic at hand, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's how you generally need to best use hype. Yeah. You know, like hype hype won't, won't see you through the entirety of your brand or whatever, it does allow you to cut through the noise. Something about this that did remind me of you is we had a conversation in the early episodes about using clothes to project a certain role. Do you remember this conversation? Basically identity, right? I think that's like an ongoing thing I've always spoken about. Yeah. And I think the reason why people are even writing about church merch is because they're a person there's a perception there, like a preconceived notion that people in churches and pastors should dress a certain way. And this uprise of streetwear looking merchandise doesn't mix, doesn't match the conception people have. Do you think that all this, when it's all said and done is a requirement to modernize the church itself for the 21st century? or for 2017, that plays like this, having a quote-unquote streetwear line are things that the church needs to do to stay relevant. Yes, I think in terms of apparel and in other regards, such as venue and music, the church has work to do to catch up to 2017. I do think that part of this merchandise coming out is not 
a direct marketing tool, but because leaders in churches want to wear these clothes, which I think is totally natural. I think there's a part of this church merch phenomenon that's not even related to marketing or pushing an agenda. And it's just because church leaders and designers in churches want to wear clothes that look like this. My topic today is, can tech's approach to innovation apply itself to the food sector, starting with the Impossible Burger? So this was spawned by an article in the New York Times. I don't think the Impossible Burger and Impossible Foods in general, which is a company out of Silicon Valley that wants to wean people off meat, is news per se. But it's just the most recent developments in its story arc that are kind of interesting. To give people a bit of background, Impossible Foods was founded by biochemist Pat Brown back in 2011. It's raised $250 million to date. Its marquee item, the Impossible Burger, uses heme, something found in the root of soybean plants. This allows it to have some of the same properties as a burger, which means the taste, texture, and the quote-unquote bleed of a regular burger. There's a video in this New York Times article that shows four people taking a taste test. And under the taste test, some could immediately identify it wasn't meat, but others were pretty open to the idea of it because it tasted generally good enough. It's, it's very good, but it doesn't, I wouldn't think it was an actual meat hamburger. But I think it's really good as a, as a plant-based option. I'm actually surprised. I'm kind of a skeptical bastard. I can tell this is not meat. It has a very like meaty flavor, like a sort of a deep beef flavor. I don't think I've ever tasted that in a non-meat product. I think there's a sense of association with what a burger should taste like. And while this didn't taste like a beef burger, it tasted good. So while the, the burger itself is interesting, I think another sort of underlying thing too is that with the backing of the tech world, um, the likes of Bill Gates, Close Ventures, and the way that it's traditionally operated in that world is you kind of do first and ask questions later. So you don't really worry about regulations and whatnot. And you let regulations catch up to you. Uber being a great example of that. What's different between the tech world and this is that since the food product, the American Food and Drug Administration has put the brakes on the Impossible Burger because of not enough rigorous testing to ensure that it's safe for public consumption. So I think that's kind of an interesting concept at hand because here you have this very old archaic sort of institution that has a lot of underlying things that are sort of intertwined within it, which I'll speak about in the next few minutes. Wait, to be clear, to my understanding, the FDA did not ban it. It's still for sale. No, no. But they're they're basically bringing to light that, hey, you know what, there's, there's safety concerns around this. Not so much that it's unsafe, but there needs to be more testing. Yeah, they didn't they didn't decide that it was unsafe. They just also refused to declare it safe. To say it was safe, correct. So it's kind of in between right now. There's a, a sense of uncertainty over the safety of that main ingredient, heme. Overall, if you want to know how big the burger industry is in the United States alone, there's upwards of 50 billion burgers consumed 
each year in the United States. That's on average three per week. There's six and a half pounds of greenhouse gases emitted by just a quarter pound burger alone. And me personally, I used to be very sort of anti-vegan, anti-vegetarian for just, I think, honestly, it was, oh, men should like meat, et cetera, et cetera. And this is, you know, me sort of showing, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm open to admitting it, but that that's how I grew up, especially growing up in a relatively small sort of working class part of Canada where there is a very strong cattle industry, right? And that was sort of like, oh, you're supposed to like this, you're not supposed to like that. And then soon as the information sort of revealed itself, research, et cetera, you, you came to understand two things. One's a little bit more anecdotal. One's obviously rooted in science. And you kind of know that there's a lot of byproduct being created from just raising cattle and whatnot, which you can't deny. And the second point was just playing sports, being an athlete, you always felt you needed to consume a ton of protein. And I've just anecdotally realized that there are certain things, especially now where, you know, I'm, I'm more of like an amateur and I just play for fun. It's like, there are things about your, your diet that don't need to be as buttoned up anymore. You know, I could be a little bit more loose. I still try to eat healthy, but it doesn't mean I need to have, oh, I need to have two grams of protein per lean body mass, for example. Like I don't really follow that. So those are two things that have fundamentally changed my outlook on, on meat consumption. So I would definitely eat, I would definitely say I eat a lot less meat than I did um, a few years ago. And I still eat meat. I probably still will continue to eat meat, but generally not in the same quantities as I once did. For myself, I don't eat a lot of red meat. I eat very little red meat. I mainly eat chicken. Um, and my meat consumption levels, I, can, I don't even know what they are compared to yours. It must be a fraction. And I genuinely like tofurkey. Do you know what tofurkey is? Yeah, I know what tofurkey is. But I couldn't tell you what it tastes like because... I've probably never, ever ordered it. I generally shy away from soy products, to be honest. That's a discussion for something else. I would be really keen on trying the Impossible Burger because I'm already interested in and enjoy the taste of meat substitutes. What piqued my interest here is twofold. It's how the tech industry has sort of approached solving problems. Mm -hmm. Once again, regulation is nothing they see as, as a hurdle, right? They're like, oh, I'm just going to do it. But... This is very different because food generally is controlled in a very different way. Mm. I also found it interesting because tech has the ability to penetrate the masses and knowing there's so much beef consumption, could Impossible Burger and Impossible Foods be this first step in changing the food supply mm. and creating options that are much less um, detrimental or much less harmful to this planet? Yeah. And I think that's one of the most interesting things is that there's already an abundance of calories in the food system. Like it, it's not hard to get calories as we've seen like rising obesity rates and whatnot. And this to me is an interesting sort of opportunity for us to re to explore how that world's playing out. There, there's always going to be, there's always going to be people that are very interested in the concept and idea of something, which are generally kind of your early adopters. And there's also another segment that are very price sensitive. So obviously price sensitivity comes into play here, but since it's not meat derived, it might actually be cheaper in the long run. You know, it's not protein based in the traditional sense. And I, I really want to see where this goes because alternative protein sources are something we're really going to need to address as a planet, right? It's cattle in itself is 
very harmful to the planet. Mm-hmm. Generally, all all cattle livestock is harmful, right? Yes. Yes. I'm interested in insects, for example. Do you think that the burger as we know it, a lot of things as we know it are slowly going to change. And when you think of a burger, let's say hypothetically, if if Impossible Foods picks up, it starts to define itself as, you know, a true pillar of the American diet in some capacity or that world anyways, that burgers as we know it will change and bring up a different memory in your mind of what a, what a burger is. I do think we are headed in that direction. In the video on the New York Times article, there was a tech person who tried the burger and he made a comment that he thinks this meatless burger is similar to electric cars in the sense that this is the natural progression in this industry. And and I agree with that, that we're in the beginning stages right now, but there's a lot of experimentation being done with meat substitutes and different sources of protein, like you mentioned, insects. Even though people may be not, you know, right now people seem to not be really keen. I think it's going to be totally different in even five to 10 years. Yeah. But does the safety part scare you? One of your concerns that you brought up as a result of this story is the idea that tech startups and Silicon Valley is able to bypass regulations. And while I don't think Impossible Foods sounds like a startup that causes me to be concerned, it does highlight to me problems with the FDA. Part of the article said that in 2013, the FDA was unaware of roughly a thousand out of 10,000 ingredients used in food because companies has used this self-affirmation process, meaning that they were able to hire their own consultants to run tests and they don't even have to inform the FDA of their findings in detail. The fact that Impossible Foods even approached the FDA for a safety check was more than was required of them. They didn't have to do that. And that's concerning to me because I don't think I trust every, I I don't, I think this is natural. I don't trust every tech startup who is looking to do a food substitute or something similar to go through all the necessary requirements, like to, to give themselves really high standards. And that is concerning because it is something you are putting in your body. Like you said, it's not an app. It's not a service. It's, it would actually biologically affect you. Could part of the slowdown in having it approved as a safe product for the market come at the hands of lobbying? Could, you know, that, that's one of the scary things with the FDA. There's a lot of lobbying going on, which is why you've seen such a influx in certain ingredients, whether it's soy, whether it's corn, you know, high fructose corn syrup, all those things are yeah. probably in part because of some sort of lobbying exactly. underneath it all. And it seems interesting. It's kind of like, well, you have one side that's well capitalized in the sense that like, oh, you know what? $250 million in funding plus whatever else comes meets generations of, of lobbyists, mm-hmm. you know, that have these existing relationships, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's sort of another scary part. Although I think we are wading quickly into territory that's beyond our expertise in terms of government policy. But to go back to why I think this is interesting for us, there is this idea that tech startups and innovative companies can cause 
enough of a hubbub in a very established industry to change how the people who have been always making decisions do things. So what would be interesting is if the popularity of impossible foods or meatless substitutes gets the cattle farmers, I'm not saying this happens, but maybe it's, it's possible, gets cattle farmers to reevaluate their stance. Like, could it be that a meatless substitute is more profitable for less resources? Yeah, I don't know if that could fundamentally change the stuff they 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 grow, they they raise, etc. I think that's that's definitely getting to things that we don't have answers to because we don't have the expertise. Yeah. No, the sticking point is just that the idea that people in our world or like in the world that we are familiar with could ca- could be the catalyst for that change. Anyone putting pressure on legacy institutions is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm, mm, I agree. You know what I mean? Like just, I think that's almost a narrative through both this topic and the first topic about church and street where it's, these are legacy institutions that are finding different ways of doing things. The food supply as we know it is potentially going to change. You know, we've seen it change from courtesy of tech innovation, whether it's Soylent. For those unfamiliar, Soylent is sort of this meal replacement um, that a lot of people enjoy consuming and nootropics, other things that, you know, it's like edible coffee. These are all things that sort of are interesting frontiers that are redefining what food means to us. Same as streetwear in the church state. It's like you're modernizing it for 2017. I like that commonality in these two topics. Yeah, I guess that's a cue to shut things down for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon and its membership opportunities, you can visit us at macon.com. You'll get to experience more of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can also subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and on iTunes. I'm Sharice. I'm Eugene. And this is Making It Up.